I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm having a coffee today with David Matten, who's the uh, Head of uh, Global Trends and Insights at Trend Watching. Uh, David, it's great to meet you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I, I know we had uh, your colleague Henry on the show last year, um, but this feels, uh, I actually now realize that you're the one who does all the work. <laughs> so, uh, I, I've actually got to the source now. A hundred percent true. A hundred percent true. <laughs> um, no, it's not true. That's not true. That's not true. <laughs> the, you know, the, the wonderful thing about, I, I love about coming back to London is that you know, even though we're approaching summer, it actually feels like it's getting colder. Right, we're, we're in a cold snap in London right now. Yeah, we're, the, the weather people are describing it as an Arctic blast. So uh, yeah, it's colder than it should be for this time of year. Well, this, this, it's, it's a perfect uh, sympathetic fallacy for uh, us to pick over the bones of the yes. global economy and what it means for brands. <laughs> so, so let's start with this, because I know this is uh, some research that you guys have done recently. Um, what, what has put this, the world in the perilous state that we're in now? What have been the forces that have, I guess, caused such disruption and chaos? Yeah, I mean, we came to, you know, to start this research process. We looked around at the world at the start of 2017, you know, and saw these epic world-shaking events of 2016, you know, Trump, Brexit, uh, you have Marine Le Pen hovering on the horizon. You know, it's not just a Western phenomenon. You have, like, the, the, the hardline right-wing populist deterrent in the Philippines. Um, and we just said, wow, you know, the, the world really is in a changed moment right now. Uh, and we want to address that. We want to we want to look at that and crucially ask, you know, how should brands respond? I think those are the surface events. Those are the visible events. Right. The deep drivers of them um, is, the, is one of the first things we wanted to address. And there I think you have to look at things like, you know, number one, just a massive failure of globalization to, to properly and fairly, in many people's eyes, distribute the gains of globalization. You know, so you, so we, we have this sense now that, especially in Western societies, but in others too, there's a section of the population, often those living outside the big cities, who just feel they've been ignored uh, and been left behind. And when you look at the evidence, you look at the economic evidence, you know, they have a point. They, they, they kind of have been ignored. Globalization's been great, dare I say, it, for people like you and me and many of the people listening to this podcast. And people in emerging markets. Right, exactly, and people in emerging markets, it's lifted, you know, we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't down talk the immense benefits that globalization has brought us, and it's, it's raised hundreds of millions of people out, out of poverty in China and other emerging markets. But there are people, you know, out in the country, so to speak, in the US and in the UK and across Europe who feel left behind. Or, or basically and, and, just outside of cities. Right, exactly. And and they roared in 2016. You know, Brexit was part of that. Trump was part of that in its own way. Duterte was part of that. Uh, what's the, the, the tumult that you see going on in Brazil is a part of that. Yeah. So that's one of the big drivers. Um, and I think a lot of people mistakenly uh, characterize this as... Uh, you know, as a non-serious trend. You know, they just thought this was populism in terms of uh, a failure to really understand economics, but it wasn't. It was a legitimate, right? Uh, right. I think you know, 
a legitimate protest against the system. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know, you quickly get onto very complex territory. It's all too easy to dismiss, you know, a vote for Trump in the U.S. or a vote for Brexit in this country as just foolishness or or a misunderstanding yeah. and just a, a simple bad choice. But you know, I think any thoughtful person would agree we have to look deeper and you don't have to look too deep to see exactly <laughs> as you say the very legitimate concerns the very legitimate grievances that are fueling that right that, that you can still see those and be disappointed by um, the response to it right, right. We, we would hope that you know the response wouldn't necessarily be go the way it's gone okay but but you have to you have to concede that the the, the grievances the concerns some among them are legitimate and then look right is trump also fueled partly by some distasteful opinions out there that are not in my view and i suspect yours legitimate grievances right but are just straightforward distasteful views yes you know so you get you get onto some very complex ground very quickly but at heart there are you know Big, legitimate, very real reasons why this happened. Right, um, and we, if and we're going to if we're going to fix fix this, we need to look at those. But this was only part of the story. There, there were some other forces that that have driven us to this point as well, right? Right. So I think, you know, to pick another two, the world is borderless now in a way that is causing uh, epic change and and tensions. Okay, so we have mass migrations around the planet in a way that we just didn't even from maybe climate change, 10 years from ago, war. right, from war. I mean, you know, in Europe, uh, and it's an impact in the US too massively, you know, the, the Syrian war has been, ha, has been an epic migration of people around the, the globe, you know, and when I say epic, I don't mean great, I mean just vast in scale. Yeah. Uh, uh, millions of people have poured into Europe and, and, and have tried to go to the US too and have poured into other Middle Eastern countries. I mean, some people even called this like they were weaponizing migration. Right, yeah. As, and, a, and as a way of destabilizing institutions. Yeah, and this has caused social tensions, you know, that have fueled, um, that have fueled the Trump phenomenon, the Brexit phenomenon, the Marine Le Pen phenomenon, alternative for Germany, you know. Uh, this borderless world and the, the fluidity of movement around the world is a big challenge to the established order, the nation-state order that we have, the idea that we are safe within these borders of our country, all that stuff sounds very 19th century, right? And it kind of is, because now, you know, people in Syria who want to leave have a smartphone, they can chart the course through, the, through Europe, advising each other, like, which way to go. You know, even 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. But I, I really think you can't underestimate how much more borderless the smartphone has made the world. I don't think that was one of the big consequences we saw coming, right? But if you no. look on the ground at the stories of the people who've charted a course from Syria through Turkey up through Europe to the UK, they, they tell you they would not have been able to do it without a smartphone. They're like the, almost the modern day explorers who crossed the great land masses leaving right. Africa. Right, right. Except instead of you know writing a diary that helps someone in five or six years when they find it in the British Library or something, right? <laughs> they're talking to each other on a smartphone, helping each other in real time, in seconds, saying like, hey, don't go, when you get to this staging post, don't go that way, go this way, because that way there's, a, there's guards now, you know? And that's helped millions of people move uh, countries in a way they wouldn't have been able to. And that is one of the other big drivers of this moment we're in now because it's caused massive social tensions you know our nation states are not cut out to deal with that adequately um, and that's helped bring us to the moment we're in and I guess the other force was is really the way we process information I mean right. this is what they call the post-truth right post-truth yes um, yeah I mean we're in a changed 
radically changed informational landscape. You know, we used to have a story told to us of our public life, our shared public life, a story told to us by an established media. Uh, they mediated that story for us, um, or the, the facts, the events for us, and they were, they held themselves on the whole, right? I'm not saying they were perfect, but to a certain standard, they, they lived by certain codes, and they presented their information in a certain way. Um, we're now, that landscape has been swept away, and now anyone can say anything, and they don't live by a shared code, they don't hold themselves to certain standards, uh, and the result is, you know, an amazing empowerment and freedom for ordinary people to have a voice, which is great, but the, the, the other side of the coin is fake news, you know, anyone can say anything and lots of people will say things that aren't true. Um, and and the, the informational landscape is totally flattened. So, so the tweet, a tweet from NASA about something NASA deeply knows about, has deep expertise in, looks exactly the same as a tweet from some nutcase in, you know, wherever, Moscow, right, who wants to just kind of cause trouble in the US election. They look the same. Or just wants to make money from page Right, content. yeah, exactly, just wants to grab clicks. But, but I, I think in some ways we've always lived with fake news. And, I mean, News of the World, National Enquirer. Right. But, but the difference is probably because of the algorithms that govern the way we pay attention. Um, people can essentially filter out all of the balance in, in the information that they get. Yeah, and I think, you know, people were... Uh, it, it, you know, it took decades or maybe even centuries, um, but people became very intelligent uh, consumers of that kind of uh, media landscape. Okay? Hardly anyone, including the vast majority of people who bought the news of the world, believed everything in the news of the world. You know what I'm saying? But uh, this new informational landscape is very new and, and it's going to take time for people to adjust to it. And we need, as strange as it sounds, you know, we need to push the message out there um, that you need to engage with this stuff critically. Okay? And you need to think about it and you need to be able to pass what is kind of true and what isn't. And obviously there's going to be some interesting experiments now. You know, we saw like Wiki Tribune, you know, the, which I think is great. You know, maybe the, the answer to the problems created by the crowd, which is some of the information isn't true, maybe the answer to that is also the crowd. The crowd will do the passing. The crowd, in the end, will come to the rescue. Let's see. I think that's a very exciting project. But you know, not to not to wind too, because we could go deep into this labyrinth, right? That changed informational landscape and post-truth, and the, the the chaos of that white noise is part of what has helped bring us to where we are too. Um, you know, we saw how deftly Trump used. Uh, an unmediated contact with the American people, you know, to win the presidency. Once upon a time, um, a message like his would have had to be mediated through an established media. Now well, he can uh, just tweet not, to not, not even that. I mean, even through an established social media team. Uh, right. I, I, I spent. Right. In fact, I've had on the podcast uh, in in the past a number of the individuals who had led both for the election and the re-election of Obama, all of his technology and uh, media, and it was it was all algorithms and data analysis and sentiment analysis. Yeah. Yeah. But but one of the things that um, you know President Trump did, which was kind of unprecedented, was that he just cut off all the filters. Right, right, and just showed the power of one, you know, one human being with a 
with a, with a voice, whatever you think of that voice, and a message, whatever you think of that message, just incredibly powerful. Yeah, I mean, you do so, not so get perversely. sense this guy is, is relying on algorithms and, 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 and Google Analytics to tell him what to tweet, right? No. It doesn't work like that. No. I mean, perversely, uh, I mean, do you think that this is the path now for brands? I mean, it could be a part of it, and th this goes to you know the entire question we wanted to address. Because when we came to write truthful consumerism, you know, we looked around us at uh, the world at start twenty seventeen, as I say, um, and, and and we thought, wow, we're in a new moment. We know everyone is talking about this. We know the entire world. You know, the commentary is endless. Our lens, as always, has to be: what does this mean for business and brands? How should you respond? You know, in this moment of uncertainty, polarization, populism, anger, post-truth, um, how can you, how can you respond, you know, what should you do? And yes, I think that taking a stand, having a voice, being daring, probably offending some people can be part of the answer for some brands, you know, maybe not all of them, and it's, if you, if you take a stand, you're going to earn some hate as well as some love, right? We saw what happened with Coca-Cola. And America, the beautiful, <laughs> in a number of different languages, and the Super Bowl. Um, I'm more thinking about giving the world a Pepsi. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, well, right. I mean, you know, I wrote something about this. I mean, Coca-Cola did that. They earned some hate as well as some love, but I think they earned more love on, on the whole. They did it well. Pepsi. They earned ridicule. <laughs> earned, earned a firestorm of ridicule by appearing to. Not appearing to, but by basically straightforwardly kind of appropriating the symbolism of Black Lives Matter and the resistance in a, in a fairly cynical, sickening way. I mean, I don't know how many tens of millions that ad cost them. It looked pretty expensive and it was gone in like eight hours. I mean, it must have cost them like tens of millions per hour it was available to the public. Do you know what I mean? Except it still is, sadly for them, available to the public, of course, on YouTube. <laughs> Retracting an ad doesn't make it go away these days. Uh, yeah, so that, that's, that's key to what motivated us. You know, you sense how volatile this environment for brands is. Look what happened to Pepsi. Look at what happened to Uber. Okay, they were held to have improperly responded to Trump's travel ban, like however, you, whatever your point of view is on the events that unfolded there. Some people were unhappy with the way they responded to the, to the travel ban. And like 300,000 accounts went up in smoke in, in hours. I mean, no. That's, that's, that's insane. So you used a phrase earlier, truthful uh, consumerism. Can, can you unpack that a little? Yeah, so we wanted to be playful around the idea of post-truth. So we, um, you know, truthful consumerism is about saying, yes, we're in this moment of polarization, of new populisms, of post-truth, um, but the future is still the truth, truthful consumerism, and we then outline five key truths, right. five key forces shaping our shared future um, that brands can ground their innovation in in the years ahead. Well, you, you can't tease me with that. You've got to at least tell me the <laughs> yes. five. Yes. <laughs> because because I'm here still thinking that truthful consumerism is being honest with yourself about how much money you're spending. Right. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, the, we, so we talk about these five key forces shaping our future. Um, and they are aspiration, positive impact, tolerance, empowerment, and one other. What's the, what's the first one? Well, you, wrote the, <laughs> you wrote the report. There's one other one, which well, I'll look Tell at. me about the four, and then you, we'll get to the fifth. Yeah, one. so for example, um, aspiration. We're really talking about the status race. 
Um, that is one of the big five key forces shaping our shared future in the years ahead. Oh yeah, transparency, of course. I knew I'd forgotten one. Transparency is the, is the fifth. But let's take the status race, let's take aspiration, because that is one I find deeply interesting. Um, what we're saying is, yes, it's a deeply uncertain moment right now. Yes, there's all this tumult. How should you respond? Okay, if you, if you ground your innovation in one of these five big forces, you'll be on ground that is very meaningful, very lasting. If you take aspiration, and by aspiration we mean the individual drive to improve materially, to be better, to have more, uh, to be more, that is a very powerful force shaping our shared future that simply is not going away in the years and the decades ahead. Um, and then we give some evidence why that is true. Uh, so for example, one of the big, big drivers of, of the global aspiration race, the status race, and, the, and its growth in the years ahead is just the amazing growth in the global middle class that we're going to see. Right. So we're going to see hundreds of millions more middle class consumers, especially in emerging markets. We'll talk about that in, in China, in India, in Africa, in the years ahead. These are people whose basic needs are met, who are able to turn their attention to you know, matters beyond just survival, right? Are, are, are you talking about like, you know, Shenzhen factory workers buying their first Louis Vuitton handbag? Right, yeah, and being able to aspire to, you know, being able to turn their attention to, uh, to self-improvement, to, to uh, material advancement and also just self-advancement, do you know what I mean? So I think it's the, the status race is gonna, is gonna grow because we're gonna see hundreds of millions of more middle-class consumers and it's also gonna intensify uh, and connectivity is a massive driver of that. You know, we all now, every single connected person on the planet has a window onto the most incredible, opulent, amazing lifestyles yeah. on the planet. And that is massively intensifying people's expectations for their own lives. So, you know, LVMH's recent moves to double down on Christian Dior into the luxury segment may have some grounding after all. Right, yeah, exactly. And I think that, um, you know, this is particularly acute in emerging markets where evidence showed that once upon a time being in a, in a poorer country didn't necessarily associate with being any less happy because people tend to compare themselves to their neighbours, right? They compare themselves to what they see around them. Um, and that kind of is the anchor that they set their aspiration levels at. Um, that is now being swept away in a very interesting way because, again, as we just talked about with the whole Syria thing, people in emerging markets now you know, have smartphones, they have a window onto the world's most amazing lifestyles, right? And right. so they're not comparing themselves to their neighbours anymore, they're comparing themselves to like well, Kendall you, Jenner. Yeah, well you're in Hyderabad looking at Coachella. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and if you look at the numbers, you look at the studies around what's happened the past number of years, past couple of, past decade or so, um, life satisfaction in some of those countries has declined and it's thought that the reason for that is because people are no longer comparing themselves to their neighbors who are pretty much like them they're comparing themselves to you know the most amazing lifestyles on the planet as are we all right in in the most affluent countries too and that is just intensifying <laughs> the status rates well that's Everyone that's that's see. gloomy it's good for the economy yeah. but it's terrible for our yes. well-being so let's, yes. let's talk about another one let's talk about transparency 
So transparency, yeah, another one of these huge forces shaping our shared future. You know, we all sense that. Um, the direction of travel is for consumers to expect to know anything about your brand and indeed anything about the world. You know, we've been, in, we've been, we've been inculcated by Google and by smartphone culture to expect to be able to pull a device out of our pocket and just instantly know anything, um, anything about the, you know, the bank of human knowledge that's out there or anything about the world around us, pretty much anything. But there's still a lot of road left to travel in terms of making your brand more transparent and helping consumers find out what they want to find out instantly in real time about the world around them. And again, what we're saying is that very powerful force, that very powerful expectation of transparency is not going anywhere in the years ahead, in the decades ahead. If you ground your innovation in that, you will be on terrain that's very meaningful, very lasting. And we give a couple of examples of that. So very quickly, you know, one pretty conventional, straightforward example, we talk about Stella McCartney just pushing their brand transparency on a notch or two by saying, we are now going to undertake environmental profit and loss accounting. Um, so we're actually gonna put a number on, we're gonna quantify our brand impact on the environment. Okay, yes. so we're used to that idea of, of brand transparency, but this is an interesting evolution or next step of that. On to something more radical, perhaps, which is where we saw Red Bull in Sao Paulo hacking uh, payphones to provide real-time, like, spoken information about bus arrival times, which I just think is a very nice, very obviously playful, fun... How did that work? Um, I'm not sure technically how it worked. I but think you mean they, you could actually just pick up a yeah, payphone in here? Oh, right, okay, how did it work for the user? Yeah, you picked up the payphone near the bus stop and it told you, you know, the, the next bar, the 215 is four minutes away, you know, the 278 is eight minutes away, you know, uh, like we have the digital displays that literally tell you, you know, this bus five minutes away. Right. Okay, it just did that, but in spoken language, which is obviously playful, it's a bit of fun, right? That alone, of course, is not going to change the world, but what it does is, tap into this deep connectivity, smartphone-fueled expectation that I, as a human being, should be able to know everything about the world about me immediately. But also repurposing uh, antiquated infrastructure. Yeah, and oh, it's nice, right, because nice. it's a very yeah. cool way of like playing with the urban environment, exactly. Yeah. But so, and again, like with, you know, with, the, with the examples, the innovations we show people, it's not about saying to them, this is what you should do, right? You, hey, you know, Unilever or, you know, Marks and Spencers or whoever you are, like WeChat, you should go and hack payphones in Sao Paulo. We're not saying that. What we're saying is look at the deep expectation at work here, which in this case is of transparency. This is how these people served it. What would it look like if you served it? How could you make either your brand, yourself, more transparent for your customers, for the world, or how could you help your help human beings, consumers, make the world around them more transparent, right? If you, if you serve that expectation, you're on powerful terrain, basically. Number three? So tolerance. Um, we talk about how, despite you know, the tumult, the uncertainty of this moment, the future is still tolerance, by which we mean sort of acceptance and celebration of difference and diversity. And it can be kind of difficult in this moment to, to believe that, right? We've just had some statements, uh, some big public statements that don't feel that tolerant. Um, but if you look at the big tectonic forces again, sort of pushing us in one direction or another, you see that they are pushing us in the direction of tolerance. There's a kind of triad of reasons for that. Um, 
But do you think if your brand using tolerance as its message, you're only talking to half the population now? Yeah, I mean, this is a very interesting conversation. What, what ultimately we're saying is you'll be on the right side of history because uh, for a number of reasons, the world is heading increasingly in that direction. But yes, there's no denying that if you, if you take a stand, if you do something like Coca-Cola did, a very bold statement around America the Beautiful having it sung in different languages. Um, there will be lots of people that love that, but there will be, at the moment, lots of people, you know, let's not hide from it, that do not like it. And some of them will hate it, and some of them will tell you. Um, so if you don't want to wade into that firestorm, which is a totally legitimate position to take as a brand, then then don't do, don't do this. It's like the um, old, um, I'm an Apple, um, I'm a PC ads. I mean, after a while, people just started to hate the Apple guy and right. actually thought the PC guy was kind of cool. Right, you know, so and again, so execution, you know, again, <laughs> trend watching, we, we, <laughs> we, we kind of have a, the, the, we're very mindful we have the easier job, right, because we just say, this is, you know, this is what you could do. Uh, so much of it is around executing it well. If you, if you preach at people or you lecture to them or you denigrate their, their, their views and the va their value as a voice, then of course, you know, they're, they're going to hate that, and so so they should. So you need to execute well if you do want to do this, and it's very, I would say it's very difficult to do well. I mean, we talked at the beginning about what happened to Pepsi, right? They were trying to take a stand on a position. They executed badly. It's, it came off as cynical. I'm sure the people in the Pepsi marketing team or whoever, whatever agency did that are lovely people, right? They, they didn't mean for it to come off that way. That's not really where their heart is but it came off that way. So you have to do this very well. And, and what can you say in the end? Taste, good taste is a lot to do with that. And you kind of either have that or you don't, <laughs> you know? So, so look at, you know, you can come to our report, look at some of the examples we show you, look at the evidence that the world is heading in this direction. If you are minded to do it, take that evidence to your higher ups and say, look, this, it's not just me. It's not just because I've got an ax to grind. It's because, you know, there are big forces shaping the world and we can align ourselves with those big forces if we do this. Um, it can be useful evidence to, to persuade others in your team um, and then do it well, you know, and let me know how it goes. <laughs> and number four? So positive impact is number four. Uh, that's just all about rising expectation that brands and businesses have a a positive impact, do more for the planet, for societies, and for individuals. Again, you know, that's an expectation we're accustomed to. Um, and we're saying, you know, despite all the tumult, the uncertainty of this moment, that is a big force shaping the world around us that simply is not going away in the years ahead. Consumers, are, we give a couple of big reasons for this. Consumers feel increasingly guilty just about the impact of their own consumption on the world, on society, on themselves, sometimes on their own health. They're trapped in this, we talk a lot of trend watching about the guilt spiral. Rising numbers of consumers are trapped in this guilt spiral um, and they're looking for brands to help alleviate that guilt. So if you can offer them value in a way that doesn't make them feel guilty about negative impact, but this is a bit like a when you, increasingly when you try to book <coughs> an airline ticket, they'll, they'll allow you to go carbon free. Right. at the end of it. So you've just you know, spent a fortune buying an expensive gas guzzling ticket and you can offset that carbon at the end. By, <coughs> by paying more, yeah. right. Um, <laughs> and of course the, the, you know, the most disruptive <coughs> brands in this space will find a way to, to help alleviate the guilt spiral without 
in, without it pushing a massive further cost onto you as a consumer. Like, I guess like Warby Parker or Tom's Shoes. Yeah, which, which goes on to the second big point. It's like, yes, consumers are trapped in this guilt spiral. They're looking for brands to alleviate the guilt. At the same time, they're having their expectations rewired by a new generation of startups that are more ethical, that have values that they share. You know, think about Tesla, think about Tom's, the buy one, give one shoe brand, Patagonia. Those kinds of brands are changing what consumers think is possible when it comes to the impact consumerism can have on the world. It can have a positive impact. It can be good for the world. It can, do, it can have a meaning, it can have a purpose. They're bringing those expectations to the entirety of consumerism. And that means if you're a big legacy brand, um, you can't afford to ignore that. You know, you need, to, you need to look at this big direction that's going to continue in the years and decades ahead and try and respond to it. You know, we give some great examples of this. I mean, one I love is, you know, this, this epic, amazing Unilever hand-washing campaign, which I'm, I'm sure you've seen, that where they're, they're pushing out life-saving hand-washing advice in, in emerging markets uh, to hundreds and hundreds of millions of people, aiming to reach a billion people. I think they've, they say they've reached like three or four hundred million already, because we know the World Health Organization says 800,000 children die every year from preventable um, di diarrhea, essentially stomach infections that can be prevented by good hand hygiene. They're saving lives with this information. An amazing example of a big old legacy brand having an incredible positive impact on the world. Right. Um, helping to shape people's expectations that your brand should do that too. So how, how are you going to do that? And, and that's of course related to the fifth and final truth, which is empowerment. <laughs> right, exactly. Empowerment, which is really a truth, you know, we put that one last because it's really a truth that encompasses all the others. Um, because of the incredible status race and the coming online of hundreds of millions of more middle-class consumers, because of transparency and the power people have now to find out almost anything, because of tolerance and uh, you know, it, it, that the, this unsteady but still but still very real progression of the idea that everyone has dignity, everyone has a voice, everyone should be heard. Because of all of that that we've just talked about, we are now in the midst of an epic shift in power away from institutions, you know, the powers that be, figures of authority and in inverted commas, and towards the individual. Um, that is an epic you know, direction of travel force that again is shaping our future in the years ahead. And if you as a brand can ground your innovation in that, if you can ask yourself, how can we empower consumers how can we ride this direction of travel you're on very meaningful I mean consumers terrain. have always been empowered I mean in the sense of where they spend their dollars I mean this was Sam Walton's classic statement you know um, consumers are in charge they can always vote to take their money elsewhere right. right yeah I mean they've always had that choice I think now they expect you as a brand to just to, to just facilitate their empowerment in in new uh, and more powerful kinds of ways right so they've always been able to vote with their dollar or their pound or their euro of course yeah. but now they're looking um, to you as a brand and saying, you know, why aren't you helping me set up my small business? Why aren't you helping me be the person I want to be? Why aren't you helping me be healthier? You know, we, we, we did an amazing example and I actually interviewed the innovator behind it. Um, MasterCard recently rolled out um, in Africa this app called Tukezi and it's about connecting African farmers to, um, to 
essentially to buyers of their produce. It's about making that market much, much more efficient because right. many of these farmers suffered from a problem where they were being manipulated by kind of um, parasitical agents, basically agents on the deal who stripped away a lot of the value from the deal, um, and just an inability to communicate effectively with potential buyers of their product, which meant a lot of their product just went to waste, right? It went off. So it was not just a campaign; it was a market intervention. It was. It was. It was. It was a way of making this market more efficient, simply by allowing buyers and sellers to talk to each other effectively, right? That that you know has transformed the lives of some of these. African farmers dramatically. That is an amazing intervention. Mastercard doesn't have to do that, you know, but I think it, and what this guy told me is, you know, we see the direction of travel is that it is an expectation that we, that we give power to your elbow, you know, we empower you. Now in emerging markets in Africa, that can look very, uh, very much like assisting with material advancement, because that's the pressing concern. In very affluent markets like ours, it can look more like, how do you help me get healthier? How do you assist my well-being? You know, how do you help me be more mindful? Be more, how do you help me meditate? You know, all these kinds of questions are about essentially the same thing. How do you empower me as an individual? It's a massively powerful question to ask yourself as a brand. Well, David, it's been wonderful meeting you. Um, and fantastic talking about this research. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com/slash Between Worlds.